Well, hello, everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of BetterHealthWhileAging.net, and welcome uh, to this COVID and vaccination update for aging adults and their families, in which I'm going to share some updates and recommendations. Today is Thursday, October 28th, um, 2021. And so I've been recording these video updates every several weeks throughout the pandemic. If uh, you are listening on the podcast, please know that on the show notes page, there will be a video embedded, but you're welcome to also just listen to the audio. I've also been putting these on our page about vaccinations at Better Health While Aging. And um, so it's now been again about six weeks since I've done one and more developments to share. So specifically in this update, I'm going to talk about the current COVID situation in the US where we're at with that and also on updates about the vaccine efficacy, what to know about uh, something that is sometimes called waning, when the effectiveness, uh, some forms of the effectiveness goes down over time, what to know about how that's affecting older adults in particular, what to know about boosters, which have recently been approved in the United States. I'm also going to talk about rapid tests and other ways to stay safer during the holidays. We have Thanksgiving in about a month and Christmas after that. And I'll wrap up with my latest recommendations for older adults and their families. So if you don't want to stay and listen to the whole update, the, you know, too long, I didn't read the whole thing, <laughs> take home points. Um, COVID vaccines, they work and they are safe. I want to reiterate that. Um, that is what the evidence overwhelmingly shows now that we have, um, I think, at least 10 months of uh, experience uh, with them. So I am going to talk about the data showing certain types of weakening and how uh, it might affect older adults a little bit more. But overall, in all age groups, COVID vaccination reduces the risk of hospitalization and death even after six months, even in people who are much older. So it's worth it. Uh, to be vaccinated. And then boosters, I'm going to go into the data on boosters. Uh, they do help protect older adults and help reduce transmission of COVID, uh, at least in the short term. That is what the research seems to show. So that is relevant, again, for this holiday season uh, over the next you know, two to three months. Um, COVID cases are currently declining in the United States, but it is too soon uh, I think to know whether we will avoid a winter wave, I'll talk about some of what we're seeing in other parts of the world and why some experts think we should be prepared to see cases go up uh, during the winter. Um, so all of these reasons are why I do recommend vaccination. If you have not yet been vaccinated for some reason, generally, I think it's a good idea. If you are eligible, I recommend boosters for older adults and others who are eligible, I recommend continuing with sensible precautions to reduce your exposure risk to COVID. And that's especially important if in your local area, uh, cases are not very low currently. And then uh, I do recommend rapid over-the-counter tests as an option to add on if they're done the same day, which can help with safer gatherings indoors if you want to do that during the holidays, which I know many of us do. So let's now go into the details. So the COVID update. So to date in the United States, we have had about 45.6 million cases and 740,000 deaths. That's over about a year and a half. Now, the good news is that we saw a surge in cases um, uh, this summer that started this summer. Um, but it has been on the decline these past several weeks, and we are now down to about 70,000 cases per day. Now, the numbers are going up in a few states, uh, most recently South Dakota, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Maine, and Idaho. I highly recommend keeping an eye on your own state. And remember that um, it's great if the trend is going down, and you also want to look at the absolute number of cases per 100,000. So ideally we wanna be getting down to less than 10 uh, cases per 100,000. That's a nice low number. So sometimes if you're just looking at the trend, you see that now it's gone down over the last two weeks, but if you're still in an area where the cases are at 50 per 100,000 uh, per day, you should be considering precautions, I would say. 
Um, the number of daily deaths is still high. It's about 1,400 per day, but it has also been coming down these last um, uh, few weeks, which is good. And then in nursing homes, that's a population that's always of special interest uh, to me, in part because it's reflective of people who are older and frailer, even if they may not live in a nursing home. Uh, cases peaked in nursing homes at around 5,300 per week in September. The CDC reports those cases on a weekly basis, and now it's at about 2,700. This is uh, nursing home residents are generally a highly vaccinated population. The vaccination rate is about 85%, um, but the vaccination rate is still lower among staff, although it has gotten better as um as there's uh, continued to be encouragement for people working in these kinds of environments to get vaccinated. So last week, the CDC reported 392 deaths um, due to COVID in nursing homes. And um, so if we were to take a quick look at uh, the, uh, the curves for this, um, again, I, uh, I often look at the New York Times, but you may have your favorite COVID dashboard from your state or from uh, your county. And uh, we don't wanna be obsessed about COVID, but I think it's important to be aware of what the trends are so we can take reasonable precautions. I think that should be our goal, reasonable precautions. So we see that it's coming down, but that it's not coming down as steeply um, as before. It might kind of... Um, you know, stabilize out. And of note, the United Kingdom, which had their Delta surge before uh, uh, we did, um, theirs came down quite abruptly. It was a surprise to all the experts, but then it came back up and it's continuing to go up. I mean, now it's come down a little bit. So again, we, uh, we are not out of the woods quite yet, is what I would say. Okay, going back to the slides. Um, so, I am happy for this decline in US cases. I want us to remain optimistic and to be prepared for um, you know, problems that may be coming up because again, uh, the cases are going up in the UK. So we really don't, it's unclear what to expect in the States, but it's certainly plausible that winter weather bringing more people indoors plus the holidays, which bring travel and indoor gatherings, parties that it could spark an increase in the US. I doubt it will be as bad as the winter wave last uh, year, but we don't wanna assume that cases will continue to decline. And even when we have moderate levels of COVID circulating in the community, it is an issue for uh, especially those who are more vulnerable to older adults, which is, um, excuse me, especially to those who are more vulnerable to COVID, which is older adults. The older people get, uh, the more uh, their vulnerability to COVID, even if uh, they are vaccinated, although that may change with the boosters, which we're going to talk about. So this brings the question of, so when will it be over? This is one of the questions that, you know, I hear every now and then, and I get it. Uh, I am tired of the pandemic too. We're all tired of the pandemic, right? So in general, it's instructive to look at what has happened during prior um, uh, pandemics. Uh, in general, Basically, pandemics peter out once enough people die or develop immunity, because at that point, the virus has relatively few transmission paths left to it. And at that point, there aren't as many fatal or serious health impacts on society. So, you know, to a certain extent, the pandemic is over once we stop seeing so many people getting sick and dying um, around us. Um, in modern times, you know, it's over kind of when the health, um, when the impact on our health systems becomes sustainable. So we're now used to there being, you know, an increase in the flu every uh, winter, most years uh, it's manageable. And so the flu does not feel like an epidemic or pandemic um, to us. It's considered an endemic uh, virus. Um, so once, uh, once enough people have died or developed reasonable amounts of immunity, then, uh, then often a virus doesn't entirely go away. It just becomes something that as a society, we figure out a way to live with. And that is the case for influenza, which, uh, in normal years, um, it's estimated that, um, a few tens of thousands to, uh, more tens of thousands. It's usually something I think like 15,000 to, 50,000 uh, people die of uh, influenza in any given year. 
So back in the day when there was a pandemic, everyone just had to sit there and see if they got it and if they survived it. Um, but now we have vaccines. And so that is another way to get population immunity. I am going to talk a little in, in a little bit about the difference between the immunity you get from having had the virus and surviving it versus getting vaccinated. Um, but in general, population immunity through vaccination is considered a better way to go because waiting for enough deaths or people to survive it is can result in a lot of deaths, like the 1918 flu, 50 million deaths. Um, and it can be a lot of suffering. Um, and with this virus, the deaths are disproportionately concentrated in older adults. And that's something to be mindful as much. And so this is part of why uh, public health experts, and I entirely agree with them, are encouraging vaccination as an important pathway to getting the coronavirus to go from a disruptive pandemic that is disrupting our lives to something manageable that we have figured out how to live with. So let's now talk about where we are at with vaccines and with breakthroughs. So as everyone probably knows, we had an amazing scientific breakthrough in that the vaccines were developed in record time um, once the coronavirus came on the scene. Now this led some people to be worried about the safety of the vaccine, but it was developed so quickly. So first of all, it used technology, the mRNA technology that had been under development and under study for quite a very long time. And second, uh, now we have had lots of people who've been vaccinated. We first started vaccinating the frontline health workers in mid-December of 2020. So we are now past, um, uh, I think we're 11 months uh, past this, and we have had 190 million people in the United States fully vaccinated. Um, if it were really unsafe, it would have shown up by now. The nature of vaccines is that if there's going to be a side effect or problem, it usually shows up fairly quickly within a week or two. It's, vaccines don't usually cause problems years down the line. So I continue to believe that the vaccines are very safe, and we now have a lot of experience with them, even though they were uh, you know, developed relatively recently. So um, we are at, uh, it's estimated in the United States at 67% of those age 12 plus. So those would be people who are eligible because um, as of today, <laughs> you have to be 12 and older to be vaccinated. That is probably going to change by the time I post this because the CDC is um, considering the approval of vaccinations for children as we speak. Uh, we have 220 million people who have had at least one dose. And among, old, uh, among older adults, people age 65 or older, uh, we have 46 million who are fully vaccinated, which is about 85% of that population. So I'm gonna go over some of the detailed data in a moment, but um, there's always questions about the vaccines in part because of media stories. So recently General Colin Powell, who was vaccinated, uh, died of COVID. He was older. He had, I think it was multiple myeloma, myeloma, a pretty significant health condition that affects your uh, white blood cells. Uh, so it's important to know that despite the details in the data, and we are going to go over it overwhelmingly, the COVID vaccines, even in people who are vaccinated over six months ago, they remain very good at preventing hospitalization and deaths due to COVID. So they remain very good at preventing the most severe forms of COVID, and they are still showing protection even in our frailest oldest population, which is the nursing home population. That said, uh, there have always been some breakthrough cases they did become more common during the Delta surge because the Delta variant was a little bit better at getting around the defenses of um, the body to at least gain an initial foothold um, in people who uh, were vaccinated. And a minority of those breakthrough infections did become serious enough that people uh, were hospitalized and some people died. So the CDC has been tracking those cases of serious COVID. And to date, we've had about 41,000 breakthrough COVID infections that result in hospitalization and almost 11,000 deaths. And uh, the vast majority of those are in older adults and people aged 65 plus. So, and again, a breakthrough COVID infection is one that occurs after the person has been fully vaccinated uh, against COVID. So 
This has led some, you know, to more concerns about the vaccine. So do they really work? Um, do they work against Delta? Are they effective in older adults? Does the fact that some people have breakthroughs mean the vaccines aren't good or aren't worth taking? Why are there now boosters? Um, does the fact that now boosters have been approved mean the vaccines don't work? Should I get a booster? Which one? So uh, I'm going to cover some of the data right now to answer those questions. And hopefully by the end, you'll feel more confident about the answers to these questions. Now, before we go into what the data shows us about how well the COVID vaccines work, uh, it's important to clarify how we should think about um, this statistic, which we call vaccine efficacy. So vaccine efficacy means how uh, efficacious, we could say effective, is the vaccine in reducing your risk of COVID. But we have different types of COVID when it comes to outcomes. We have different COVID outcomes that are of interest. And so we need to distinguish between how effective is the vaccine in preventing an infection, which means testing positive, getting symptoms, versus how effective is the vaccine in preventing severe illness, meaning getting sick enough to go to the hospital or God forbid, die. Um, so we wanna distinguish between those two because of course, uh, hospitalization and death is a much more important outcome to protect against uh, versus testing positive and getting symptoms. Now, testing positive and symptoms uh, is important, um, even though it might be quite manageable for people, it's important in terms of the transmission of COVID throughout the population and potentially to people who are more vulnerable and more likely to get seriously ill, uh, either because they're unvaccinated or because they're older or less likely to um, be as well protected by the vaccine. Um, so as we look through the studies, we're going to be thinking about that, you know, is this, uh, which outcome was being studied? Are we talking about the outcome of hospitalization or death versus testing positive for COVID or having a, a mild case? Um, mild meaning you didn't get hospitalized. Some people with a mild breakthrough COVID or mild COVID um, say that it was like a bad flu and that's pretty miserable for a few days. Uh, also in the research, um, the question is, um, how did vaccine efficacy change over time? Time meaning how uh, time since vaccination. Um, and then we also wanna think about time as in which time of the year did the study take place? And was that a time when the Delta variant was prevalent? There is at this point, lots of evidence that Delta was more effective <laughs> in transmitting itself and in uh, getting people sick. It has uh, made it a little challenging because of the timing uh, when uh, you know there were lots of breakthroughs to detect whether it's not just because it's been already four or five, six or more months since people were vaccinated, or is it because we have more, uh, more Delta? So whenever you hear about a study reporting on how well the vaccines uh, work, um, it's good to ask yourself, well, did they look at outcomes kind of in the pre-Delta era or the more recent Delta era? So for instance, there was just a study published in the New England Journal, I think this month in October, about the vaccine efficacy for the Moderna vaccine. But it turned out it was a continuation of the original Moderna data from last year, and they stopped collecting data, I think at the end of March. So that information is effectively pre-Delta. So in terms of answering the question of what should I expect now from my vaccine protection or for my parents, um, you know, that's a bit outdated and less relevant. And you know, it would be more relevant to find information, uh, data that was gathered during the Delta surge, which in the States started really, um, depending on where you were, but it really you know, got going uh, starting this past summer. So as you probably already know, we have three COVID vaccines in the United States. Two of them are mRNA vaccines, uh, Pfizer and Moderna. And then we have the Johnson & Johnson one dose vaccine. Uh, I believe it's still only Pfizer that got full FDA authorization on August 23rd um, of this year, and Moderna is still being used as an emergency use uh, authorization. We have overall much more data on the mRNA vaccines because they were given much earlier and they were given to more people in the United States. Uh, and also notably the country of Israel made a deal with Pfizer. They got 
uh, lots of Pfizer vaccine, and they promised to share their data and their outcomes with the company, and they um, publish on that uh, regularly. So that's what we know the most about. And as of today, only Pfizer is available for ages 12 through 16. Uh, it is expected the FDA approved um, uh, vaccines uh, for children just recently, and the CDC um, approval and guidelines are, uh, are imminent. So what have we learned about these vaccines? So it, it became clear fairly quickly that although any vaccine was better than no vaccine when it came to reducing your risk of um, getting sick from COVID or even transmitting COVID, uh, it became clear early on that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were much more effective. Um, but what has become clear in more recent months with more data is that it does look like Moderna is generally a little bit more effective than Pfizer. This was not surprising to me because Pfizer used a smaller dose of mRNA in their vaccine. They used 30 micrograms, whereas Moderna used 100. Pfizer also had a shorter dosing interval between the two doses, three weeks instead of four weeks. Um, that allowed people to be fully vaccinated sooner. But actually, especially as people get older, it's an advantage to give their immune system more time to respond to the first dose of vaccine before giving a, a second one. So Moderna from the get-go seemed to have a setup that was likely to give a better stimulus to the aging immune system. Those are just things we know from other vaccinations for older adults. That's why we have a high-dose flu vaccine um, because uh, an aging immune system essentially needs like a bigger kick uh, to really uh, respond. So I think I shared some of this information in the last update, but the Mayo Clinic studied both and um, found that Moderna had slightly higher vaccine efficacy. That's what VE stands for against hospitalization. Um, and, um, and then, you know, in these studies, we start to see how the vaccine efficacy against infection is generally lower than against hospitalization. Um, now, there was a nursing home study in July that found that over time it went down to 50% for both. I looked for updated information on what they've been finding in nursing homes, and I wasn't able to find anything more recent published. It'll be interesting to find out whether that finding uh, replicates um, you know, in larger data sets or in uh, other data sets. Um, other more recent estimates of vaccine efficacy, um, Kaiser, uh, studied uh, just people who had gotten uh, the Pfizer vaccine through the beginning of August. And they found that uh, the effectiveness against infections declined from 88% during the first month after full vaccination to 47% after five months. But that was against infection. The efficacy against hospitalization remained steady at 93%. This was in people of all ages. Uh, they also saw that the uh, efficacy against the non-Delta variants went from 97% to 67%. So they did, you know, often in many of these studies see that the vaccine efficacy dropped down more against uh, Delta. So yes, there's a waning and Delta is also a little bit better at getting around the vaccine protections uh, when it comes to infection, not hospitalization. I'm going to explain why that is um, in a moment. In New York State, they studied uh, recipients of all three vaccines from the beginning of May through the beginning of September. So that is, again, an interval that covers plenty of time with uh, data. They saw that vaccine efficacy, uh, again, for cases, so that means testing positive or having symptoms, um, declined over time uh, more in Pfizer compared to uh, Moderna but that the vaccine efficacy against hospitalization held steady at 86% in people under age 64. Now, among people over age 65, their data showed um, that there was a little bit more of a drop in vaccine efficacy. Uh, this was for cases from May to August. Um, so for Pfizer, it went from 95% to 89%. And for Moderna, it went from 97% to 94%. So, uh, so again, both vaccines remain uh, good in, uh, in August, but Moderna a little better. Uh, I think this was for cases. Uh, I think they didn't have enough data to say uh, how much the vaccine efficacy changed for hospitalizations in the older adult um, data set that they had. 
And then um, another study from Kaiser Southern California. So Kaiser does a lot of research. They have a very robust research group within their health system, which uh, is great for health policy um, uh, researchers uh, and epidemiologists. Uh, so they studied the vaccine efficacy specifically in Moderna recipients from March through the end of July. And they found that the vaccine efficacy was 87% against Delta compared to 98% against Alpha. So Alpha is the one we had uh, at the uh, beginning of, uh, of the year. Um, they also saw that the vaccine efficacy declined. Um, so immediately after vaccination in the 14 to 60 days after being fully vaccinated, it was 94%. And whereas when they looked at people who were 150 to 180 days uh, after vaccination, so that's five to six months after vaccination, the efficacy had dropped to 80%. Um, and they said they saw less waning for the non-Delta variants. And then they also saw that the vaccine efficacy against Delta was lower for people who are age 65 uh, or older. It was 75% um, for those compared to... Um, for adults age 18 to 64, it was 88%. Uh, so this is kind of the scale of the differences that we're seeing. So the good, the thing about looking at a few different studies is that you're usually they won't show the exact same results, but you start to see patterns. And if several studies are showing a similar pattern, then you can start to feel like it's reasonable to draw some, uh, some conclusions. Um, and um, a few last uh, research studies to share. Uh, the CDC studied uh, immunocompetence. So people who are not immune compromised, those were excluded from the study. Um, they studied uh, people who were hospitalized but were not known to be immune compromised um, uh, starting from uh, March 11th of 2021 to August 15th of 2021. And they looked at vaccine efficacy in people who were at least uh, four months um, out from full vaccination, 120 days. And what they saw was that the efficacy was 92% for Moderna. Um, and this is efficacy against hospitalization, uh, I believe. It was 92% for Moderna, 77% for Pfizer, and 68% for Johnson & Johnson. So the CDC has estimated that in general, vaccinated people are eight times less likely to be infected and 25 times less likely to experience hospitalization or uh, death. So, um, so when you hear about breakthroughs, it's really important uh, to think, well, it's not just about, is there somebody who was vaccinated with COVID who still got a breakthrough or maybe even got hospitalized or God forbid died. It's how much you know, higher is the risk for people who are not vaccinated. And the good news is that the CDC is now reporting COVID cases and deaths by vaccination status. They didn't do this for a while, but they recently have started uh, doing it. And um, so I recommend taking a look. I'll post a link in the related um, uh, links for this video. Uh, the New York Times does a nice analysis of the data from the CDC. And what it shows is that every age group seem to have similar rates of breakthrough cases, but the death rates varied more drastically by age and basically went up. Uh, with age, hospitalization rates um, also. And so it was unvaccinated older adults who were the most likely to die from COVID of any group. However, um, vaccinated people who are age 80 and older seem to have higher death rates than unvaccinated people under 50. So for, for at every age, vaccination dramatically reduces your risk of being hospitalized or dying from COVID. And the absolute risk of dying from COVID after you're vaccinated, if you are age 80 above, uh, is still not that big, but it's not, it's not trivial. It's not nothing. It's actually more than the absolute risk um, of people who are under age 50 and are unvaccinated. So um, there's another uh, article that I thought was very good in New York Magazine, of all magazines, about how the age skew of COVID <laughs> has been underestimated. And we sort of talk about vaccinated people versus unvaccinated people, but within vaccinated people, the risks are very different for people who are over age 80, 85, than they are for people who uh, you know, are young or even middle-aged. And it's important to not lose sight of that as we think about uh, safety and also as we think about the choices we're going to make 
as a society. So just to show um, a little bit, because graphics are worth a thousand words. Uh, so this, this is the new CDC page, rates of cases and deaths by vaccination status. Um, what's neat is you can see it by vaccine product, actually. So you see unvaccinated right here <laughs> have the most cases. Uh, and then uh, more cases in people who had uh, Janssen is the parent company for Johnson & Johnson. And then we have Pfizer and then we have uh, Moderna and then they show it also by age. Now I think right here they don't, sh there may be a way if you tinker with their underlying um, thing to show you data, but um, right now there's not an easy way to see it by age group and by um, vaccine, which is potentially what you might want to look at if you're wondering, you know, for your age and your whichever vaccine that you got. A little bit easier is to look at the New York Times article on this where they show the curve. So with each of these curves, we have unvaccinated on the top and fully vaccinated on the bottom. So here we have cases and here we have deaths. Um, so you can see kind of a similar level of cases at all age groups. But when you look at uh, deaths, you know, the bump is especially noticeable in people who are aged 80 and older when, uh, when it comes to, um, to deaths. Okay. So what can we conclude given all this? So again, uh, I find it helpful to have looked at a few different data sets and see them converging in the same direction. And so what I would say we can conclude is that the vaccines even given that uh, most of our older adults actually got you know, vaccinated more than six months ago, the vaccines have remained very effective in protecting against hospitalization, even against Delta, even after six months, even in people who are aged 80 plus. So again, if you look at uh, the curve we were just looking at uh, right here, you know, this is the effect of the vaccine right here in people who are age 80. So yes, we have more deaths in the 80 plus group than here for sure. And you are still better off being vaccinated. There's just no question uh, about it. Now, if we have a difference in death rates, you know, in people in their 30s, 30s, 40s, vaccinated and not vaccinated too. So, um, you know, at every, at every age, except possibly it's a little, it's hard to say there, the death rate is so low in children. Um, uh, over here, but at, at all the other ages, it definitely makes a difference. Now, I would say it's still worth considering vaccinating young people and children just to reduce transmission in the community and also transmission to grandparents. Um, but if the question is, do the COVID vaccines still work against Delta after six months? Yes. Um, now, the protection against infection does drop over time. Um, so the implications for this is that over time, you become more likely to get a mild case of COVID uh, that's inconvenient or disruptive. I think, you know, uh, also important, especially for those of us who work with older adults, is that when people are having a mild case of COVID and some of them will be asymptomatic but still have a high viral load, they can transmit it to someone else, notably an older person who might be vaccinated and still has a higher risk of breakthrough and complications than somebody who is uh, much younger. So um, that is, I think, a significant thing to keep in mind. Uh, Moderna seems to be a bit more effective than Pfizer in most situations. Again, I'm still waiting to see more information specifically for the nursing home population, but for older adults in general, Moderna seems to be a bit more effective. And both mRNA vaccines have shown to be more effective than Johnson & Johnson. And then in terms of, is it safe? We've had over 200 million people vaccinated in the US. Uh, I don't even know how many millions of people it is worthwhile worldwide. The risks of COVID remain vastly larger than, um, I mean, really there've been like, given the number of people vaccinated, the number of safety issues is uh, quite small. Uh, there are presentations from the FDA where they regularly do a vaccine um, safety uh, update. And I recommend those if you want like the very latest on vaccine safety. Um, it does look, especially young men 
have um, a little bit higher risk of this heart inflammation when they get an mRNA vaccine. Uh, I think in the youngest men, it you know got. I think the rate overall was like ten cases per million. Uh, I think vaccines given, but in young men, it ended up being you know a hundred. Um, you're so much more likely to get heart inflammation from catching COVID, um, unless you live in a bubble and never go outside and never get exposed to COVID. Um, and then last but not least, uh, what we see from our experience with the vaccines and breakthroughs uh, is that uh, there are breakthroughs, um, especially when it comes to Delta, especially when people are more than a few months out from their vaccination, but the serious ones uh, overwhelmingly happen in older adults. So vaccines do protect older adults, but the protection works less well as one gets older and also as time since vaccination gets longer is what we are seeing. So that brings us to boosters. Um, so why boosters? Well, boosters um, were uh, first tried by Israel this past summer. And the idea of a booster is to counter the effect of this waning efficacy, especially against infection and uh, mild illness. Um, so they did this in Israel because they uh, had a fairly vaccinated population, but saw concerning levels of hospitalization during the Delta surge, including in older adults who were vaccinated. So the presumption is that if younger people are getting breakthroughs, they're maybe not getting so sick, but they're helping passing it around. And we're having more older people who are vulnerable to more serious breakthrough catch it. And a certain proportion of them will end up in the hospital, a minority, but still, if you get enough of them um, COVID, you can end up with a substantial number in the hospital. So how does a booster help? Uh, so basically the way the vaccine works is that when you first get the vaccine, your body creates an immune response to fight it. And you, um, your body puts all these antibodies actually in your bloodstream and they are circulating around and they continue to circulate for a few months. Um, but uh, what happens is that those circulating antibodies fade away after time. Um, and uh, so then if you are exposed to the virus again, your body will recognize the virus and fire up its equipment and generate a strong antibody response uh, within a few days. So when people get boosters, that you know, gives them another uh, stimulus to the immune system and they get high levels of antibodies again. And that is protective in the short term because the having the antibodies actually going around in your bloodstream, you know, in the blood that's right in the layers of your nose, your upper airways, the, you know, the parts of your body that get exposed to outside air, that helps prevent the infection from taking hold in the first place. Because if you don't have those higher levels of circulating antibodies, then especially a, uh, a variant like Delta, which has, you know, evolved to be particularly good at getting in there and getting into the nose and getting started, uh, it establishes itself uh, in establishes, excuse me, itself in what we call the upper respiratory tract. So that's your nose, your throat, the upper part of your throat, and that's where people get cold symptoms and flu symptoms. Lots of viruses are adapt to kind of nestle in right there, give you cold symptoms, which, you know, make you sneeze and kind of spread so that they can uh, spread up. And so people are contagious during that time. Now, if you are vaccinated within a few days, the body will marshal a vigorous response, assuming you have a good vigorous immune system. Um, and that will kind of beat back the virus. And one, your viral loads will drop and you will stop being contagious fairly quickly. And two, it will prevent the virus from getting deeper down into your body and causing more serious problems such as pneumonia or other forms of serious illness. So yes, people who are vaccinated can get COVID, can be contagious, can transmit it, and can for even a day or two have viral loads that are that seem to be for some people just as high as unvaccinated, but they are not as contagious in that they don't stay contagious for as long. They will be contagious like that usually for just a day or two. Uh, I'm not sure the exact period of time is, but I think it's fairly brief, uh, like on the order of about two days. Um, whereas in people who are unvaccinated, they retain a high viral load in the upper airway where they can share it with others for much longer. Uh, which means that they um, 
have more of a chance to pass it along to other people and get other people sick. So boosters will, in other words, raise the antibodies at least short term so that you're less likely to get it and you are also less likely to be transmitting it to other people. So Israel, uh, when they saw their Delta surge take off in the summer, they decided to start giving out um, boosters. They felt that they had, uh, they were among the first also to report that the vaccine efficacy seemed to be going down. Uh, they felt they were seeing more breakthroughs in people who were five to six months post-vaccination. So they started their booster campaign at the end of July, and uh, they went on to boost uh, not only older adults, but basically, you know, all adults in Israel. Um, so the published research that they that was just published this month uh, shows that by the end of August, a month later, there was a pretty significant decrease in cases and hospitalizations among their older adults. Now, July you know, was just a few months ago. So, you know, the big question is how long does that protective effect last? Um, and what are the long-term benefits of a booster? And that is an area of active research as we speak. Um, so given the experience in Israel, other countries have gone on to approve boosters, uh, usually for their older adults. And uh, in August, the Biden administration announced their intention to make boosters available. There was a little back and forth about exactly when, for who, but uh, now the FDA um, and the CDC have approved, uh, first they approved the Pfizer vaccine booster um, in later September for older adults and for other select groups who were vaccinated at least six months ago. And uh, now just recently in October, uh, it has also, uh, boosters have been approved for people who got the Moderna vaccine or the Johnson Johnson vaccine. I'll talk about that in a moment. So uh, the FDA's uh, and CDC's recommendation for boosters, which they first articulate for Pfizer, was that they said you should get one if you are 65 years old or older, if you are the resident of a long-term care facility, so like a nursing home, if you are an adult age 50 to 64 at high risk due to underlying medical conditions. Now they said you may get it, kind of more like an up to you if you want, if you're an adult who lives or works in a high risk setting, um, so um, healthcare providers, uh, frontline uh, workers, uh, teachers, um, prison inmates, uh, they, they have a list. They also said that if you're an adult age 18 to 49 at high risk due to medical issues, you may get one. Now. What the, they did not specifically say, but I think it's relevant, is you know what if um, what if you don't work in a nursing home, but you are under age sixty five, and you take care of your aging parent who is in their late eighties or nineties. Um, they have not said whether those people would be you know should or may get uh, a booster, but I think of um, and some of you may be in that situation. I think of that uh, the family caregiving population as very important also um, to think about when it comes to vaccine protection because of the nature of who they work with and um, who they're in contact with and who could catch COVID from them. So that is still a little up in the air, um, whether uh, those people should get a booster or not. Uh, as of today, I think it's not officially recommended. Although it also seems like it's fairly easy for people to get boosters if they ask for one. Um, so now just a little over a week ago, the FDA approved boosters for Moderna and for Johnson & Johnson. So for Moderna, it's the same kind of criteria if you're older or high risk. Now, the Pfizer booster is another 30 microgram dose. So kind of the same sh vaccine shot as the original. Uh, the Moderna booster is half of the original. It's 50 micrograms. It's still 50 micrograms compared to 30. <laughs> so um, there has only been a small amount of comparison of the two, but um, you know it is still a little bit more of a stimulus, I would suspect. Now for Johnson & Johnson, the booster is just a second shot of the original vaccine. And they said that people can get it after two months and they don't have to have any special age criteria or risk criteria. And that is because you know they can see that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been less uh, effective in general. Um, the FDA also approved a mix and match booster strategy. So what that means is that you can get your booster with a different vaccine formulation than your original 
series. So if you're originally vaccinated with Pfizer, you can get the Moderna booster. You can get the Pfizer booster. You can even, if you want, get the Johnson and Johnson booster, which one is better. Uh, so there is a study right now it's in preprint. It means it hasn't finished peer review and officially been published, but I will post a link to it. They studied, I think about 450 people, like 150 in each group. Um, a group that had been originally vaccinated with Pfizer, another vaccinated with Moderna, and another vaccinated with um, Johnson Johnson. Uh, and then of each of those groups, they divided them into three and gave them a different booster. So you can look and see the booster effect <laughs> uh, on antibodies afterwards. And basically everybody had a good response to the booster. The only one that seemed noticeably weaker uh, in antibody response than the others was if you first had Johnson and Johnson and then got a Johnson and Johnson booster. Um, so any booster is okay, but if you had Johnson and Johnson the first time around, it looks like you're better off getting an MRNA booster. And if you had a Pfizer and Moderna vaccine the first time around, it's not really clear to me why you would want the Johnson and Johnson um, booster. Uh, it did, they, in that study, they also show the percentage of people who had side effects like the aches, pains, fever. Um, and I think it's a little lower if you get the Johnson and Johnson booster, but I don't know if that's enough to tip people over into one or uh, the other. And again, what we're seeing is the bump in antibodies, um, how long it's going to last and what it means for your vaccine protection six months after boosting is I think, you know, still to be determined by following people who, you know, first the Israelis who got boosted this past summer and then others. So to be found out. Now, I do want to speak very quickly to the difference between a third dose and a booster. Uh, these terms used to be used interchanging, <clears throat> interchangeably. I think I may have even used it that way at one point, but now the FDA and CDC have decided to be clear about it, that a third dose means an additional shot of vaccine for people who are moderately or severely immunocompromised and were unlikely to have a good response to the original vaccine series. So in particular, they call out people who have had transplants, people who have had blood cancers, so uh, leukemias, lymphomas, um, myeloma, uh, people who have HIV, uh, or people who are under active treatment with high-dose corticosteroids, high-dose prednisone, or other drugs that may suppress the immune system. Uh, so that's the third dose. So it's supposed to be just like another shot of whatever uh, the vaccine was. So if you were getting a third dose of Moderna, I believe then it, you would get 100 micrograms, not 50. Um, and it can be given 28 days after the second dose. They've apparently even now announced that those people could get a, potentially a fourth dose six months after the third dose. But, you know, nobody is any, <laughs> the earliest anyone will be eligible for that one will be February. So we'll see where we're at then. Uh, so um, to wrap up with my take on boosters, um, I actually think boosters are a good idea when it comes to protecting older adults uh, who one, are a population of special interest to me, but two, we see from our experience with COVID that they are the ones who are overwhelmingly at higher risk of harm from catching COVID, whether or not they are vaccinated. So boosters will protect most older adults from serious COVID breakthrough infections, at least in the short term. I say most just because there's a minority of older adults who have truly weakened immune systems um, due to either extremely advanced age or their underlying health conditions. And those are the ones who didn't don't respond super well to the vaccine in the first place. Uh, the ones who are, you know, immune compromised, um, they are looking into giving such people special injections of protective uh, antibodies. Um, we'll see whether that's scalable and feasible for lots of people, but um, but that's really a minority of older adults who fall in that category. So in general, boosters should protect most older adults from serious COVID breakthrough infections, at least in the short term you know, which I would say at least for a few months. Um, also, um, getting a booster will make you less likely to catch and transmit COVID, whether you are an older adult concerned about your aging spouse or your aging friends, uh, or whether you are somebody middle-aged who otherwise qualifies and are coming into contact with older people as I do as part of my work, but also as part of interacting with 
uh, my family. I have family members who uh, fall into an advanced age uh, range. So at least in the short term, it makes it less likely that you would catch COVID and accidentally transmit it to somebody vulnerable. Getting a booster, as best we can tell, appears to be safe. I think at worst, you'll have some of the sort of like short-term reaction that some people get to the COVID vaccine, the blas, fatigue, maybe a little fever for a day, aches, uh, but you're very unlikely to have anything uh, serious. And I really do feel like the boosters are an important part of keeping older adults safe during these COVID times, especially as we go into a time of year where more people will be indoors, there'll be more travel, there'll be more gathering. And I want older adults to be able to enjoy that as much as possible and not be at too high risk. So I think boosters are going to be a part of that. So for your frequently asked questions regarding boosters, So if the question is, should my aging parents get one? Yes, I would totally recommend it. <laughs> now, if you're thinking which one, there's no official recommendation on which booster for anyone or which booster for older adults. Um, but the Moderna booster is 50 micrograms. The Pfizer booster is 30. I would probably go with the stronger one to just give them the better, you know, bigger uh, stimulus to the immune system. Um, uh, but any of them should be fine. Uh, if your question is, should I get a booster? Well, certainly if you fall into one of the eligible groups, um, if you fall into one of the groups for which it's recommended, I would say yes. If you're in one of the may get it, I would say again, if you are going to be coming into close contact with people who are older or vulnerable to severe COVID, I would think about it. Uh, I think there's a definite uh, benefit there. Um, Otherwise, I think it's it's a little bit optional. So for my family, I'm going to get a booster. I work, you know, um, uh, when I do house calls with very frail older adults, uh, but also my husband, who is a teacher, is going to get a booster because we are going to fly over the holidays to see his parents who are in their 90s. Um, and we want to take every opportunity we can to help protect their health. Um, can a booster and the flu shot be given at the same time? It is right now the season for getting flu shots. The answer is yes. It's recommended to use different arms. You can use the same arm. You're supposed to be at least an inch apart for each needle. So it shouldn't be the same needle. If uh, for older adults who are getting flu shots, I recommend the higher dose one. Uh, if possible, flu zone high dose. We have an article on flu shots on better health while aging. Uh, and then only occasional people have asked me this, which is more important, the COVID booster or the flu? Uh, so the right answer is they're both important. Get them both. Um, between us, uh, I'm more concerned about COVID for this winter than the flu. Um, we had a very weak flu season last year. It's unclear what will happen. I think it's a good idea to get flu shots just to be protected. We don't know. The Southern Hemisphere uh, just had its second very weak flu season in a row. They've been under more lockdowns over there than we have been in the States, uh, you know, and it probably has something to do with how much restriction is going on due to COVID or other reasons. So uh, just to be on the safe side, I would say get both. Um, and uh, if you can only get one at a time, I, I would start with COVID booster and then I would go with a uh, flu shot. Now, there are still some issues that are unclear regarding boosters. And specifically, there's the question about what about people with hybrid immunity? So what is hybrid immunity? Hybrid immunity is when you have immunity due to a past COVID infection plus vaccination. So this has been studied and it looks like um, uh, you do get immunity from a COVID infection, but your uh, antibody levels and protection seems to be even better if you have both COVID infection and at least one vaccine dose. It's actually not clear that people who've had COVID really benefit from the second vaccine dose. Um, this is again, all comers. This is research that's done in the general population, which means they haven't usually pulled out specifically like people who are over age 80 to ask the same question. You know, it's possible that just one vaccine shot is enough for people who are under age 60, but that in even in people who already had COVID, they really do better when they get two vaccine doses. Uh, I don't think we know, um, but uh, that would be hybrid immunity. So the question is whether if 
you were vaccinated against COVID and then got a breakthrough, should you get a booster? Um, and what's interesting is the CDC has their page about boosters with FAQs, but they do not have this question, even though I have been asked this question and I'm not sure what to tell people because I have not been able to find published research addressing the question or guidelines. Um, so I think right now it seems safe for older adults who've had a breakthrough infection to get a booster. Um, it might help. I think it's unclear how much it will help and it is unlikely to harm. Um, for people who are under 65 and have uh, had COVID and vaccination, it's not clear that boosters are going to be um, helpful to them. Although there again, you know, uh, I don't know that it has been studied how protected they are from, again, getting the mild infections that they could transmit to others. Um, they definitely have like pretty robust protection against serious COVID when they have hybrid immunity. So these are some of the things that remain to be found out about uh, boosters. So I'm gonna close with some words about COVID safety during the upcoming holidays. Um, I am hoping that COVID cases will continue to go down and stay nice and low throughout the winter. I would love that. And it's quite possible that holidays are gonna cause an increase in COVID. We have travel, we have gathering, we have people inside for the winter and many adults are reaching um, the six month mark since vaccination. So uh, older adults started getting vaccinated. I think it was like last January, February and a lot of the general adult population was able to get vaccinated starting, you know, uh, April and May and June, those who wanted to, of course, there were other people who wanted to wait a little longer, got vaccinated later. That's fine. Better late than never. That is one of my, uh, mottos. Um, so I think it's important to, um, I don't want COVID to ruin our holidays and cast unending gloom on our lives. And I think it's also important to take sensible precautions. So uh, what I would suggest is, you know, boosters if you're eligible and for older adults, masks when you're in indoor public places, whether or not people are vaccinated, unless COVID rates have gone stone way down low. <laughs> um, I think we got to one point in June in San Francisco where we were at like two per hundred thousand, um, but we're not there now. Uh, I would be careful with unmasked indoor gatherings, even if everyone is vaccinated. I would consider rapid testing right before indoor gatherings, and I would monitor local COVID rates and be more careful if they are high or rising. So what to know about rapid COVID testing? So you've probably heard of these. They're the over-the-counter rapid testing kits with a swab. You put it in your nose. You don't need a prescription. You put some drops of solution on it. You put in a little like card. You wait and look. It's like a pregnancy test. If it's positive, like a second line uh, will appear. So these are antigen tests. Antigen means a piece of viral protein, and they're checking for the presence of viral proteins in your nose. Now, the other kind of COVID test that they do with the nasal swab, often done by professionals and they scrub a little harder, is called a PCR test. They take the sample to the lab where they run amplification cycles and they look for the RNA, that's the material of the virus, um, to find it. Um, so the lab PCR test is more sensitive, which means it is better at finding positive COVID even when the amounts are smaller than the antigen test. So you basically need a higher load to show up positive on an antigen test um, than on the lab PCR test. And also when people are doing it at home, do it yourself, uh, their technique for gathering the sample might be suboptimal. If you hand the swab to your kid and are like, swab your nose, your kid might just be like, swipe, swipe, and barely do anything. Um, so these tests are great. Uh, there's a good article about using them in the New York Times, but they said they're 98% likely to find people who are contagious. And I looked for the data and I'm not sure what, where's the data that that is based on. Um, uh, I found a systematic review, which I can link to that studied lots of them and found a pooled sensitivity of 71%. So that means when the PCR test was positive, the rapid antigen test was positive 71% of the time. So that's pretty good, but there's still a lot of false negatives happening there. Uh, these tests do seem to be more accurate when people have symptoms. Um, 
So uh, less likely to catch the person who's feeling fine and either hasn't yet developed symptoms or is going to have one of those like no symptom cases. And then again, the collection technique makes a difference as well. So I wouldn't think of them as 98% accurate. At the same time, they are a useful tool. They, you know, in a way we can think of COVID protection as like a Swiss, you know, layers of Swiss cheese where the holes aren't all lining up, right? And you end up with some protection. So if people have been vaccinated and they're often wearing masks when they're in indoor public uh, spaces, um, and then they also take a rapid test, you know, an hour before they get together for the indoor unmasked family gathering with other vaccinated people, your chances are pretty good that, you know, nobody will be transmitting COVID at that moment. Um, so the New York Times described, you know, for vaccinated people, a negative rapid test as a one day anxiety free pass. Uh, I thought that that wasn't bad. Um, so an option is to have everyone, whether or not they're vaccinated, test negative right before an indoor gathering. And if you do that, it's reassuring that the transmission is unlikely at an event. Another option is that if you are traveling or staying with your aging parents, then you can check a rapid test every one to two days. So the nature of the rapid test is that it's checking the viral load at that moment in your nose. So if you took the plane the day before, you could have picked up COVID and the next day, even if you caught it, you're probably not going to be testing positive because it hasn't yet gotten a foothold. You might test positive a few days later because it can take a few days to get to the point where it's going up in your body. And again, if you're vaccinated, you'll have a higher viral load just for a few days instead of for several days, the way unvaccinated people are more likely to do. So that's another option for using rapid COVID testing to help stay safer during uh, the holidays when it comes to gathering or travel. So in summary, I'm not going to wrap this up. Thank you for your staying with me. Um, the COVID situation remains concerning, but we are in a much better place than we were a year before, no doubt about it. And that is in large part because of the vaccines. Yes, we have a certain amount of natural immunity because now so many people have gotten COVID in the country, but the vaccines help as well. We would have had many more deaths among our older population if it hadn't been for both older adults being vaccinated and also younger people, because we know from um, studies of children and households that when some people in a group are vaccinated, the unvaccinated people have fewer cases of uh, COVID. So older adults in particular benefit from being vaccinated and from others around them being vaccinated. And I just think that's a really important message to get out. The vaccines, even six months out, even with Delta remain excellent at protecting most people from hospitalization and death. Now they do weaken over time when it comes to preventing mild COVID infections. And that has implications, especially for um, transmitting COVID to others, which can be significant if you are around people who are much older, even if they're vaccinated uh, or if they're unvaccinated or if they're vulnerable because they're immune compromised or some other situation. So we should keep that in mind. And then I do think that uh, older adults getting COVID boosters during the next several weeks and also other people who are eligible, those of us who work with them, those of us who can get it for other reasons, uh, that is also going to reduce COVID transmission and will make the holidays safer for all of us, but especially for older adults in uh, among us. So to wrap up with the recommendations, uh, again, I would recommend older adults get a booster dose uh, as soon as possible, because remember it takes, they say two weeks for it to take effect. The reality is the older people get often, the longer it takes their immune system to fully respond to a vaccine. So I think it's good to give them like, you know, three to four weeks um, because Thanksgiving is in about four weeks. Uh, so any booster will help. It's plausible that the Moderna booster will turn out to be a little bit more effective. We don't know for sure right now. Um, boosters will also reduce your chance of transmitting COVID to somebody vulnerable. So depending on your life circumstances and who you're near, that's something to consider. And then I always uh, recommend following your local COVID case rates because you want to use more masks, distances, uh, distancing, and other precautions if your area is not low uh, transmission. 
If for some reason you haven't yet been vaccinated against COVID, I want to encourage you to, uh, to do so. It's safer for you. It helps your, uh, your community. Um, and really most, even if you don't get boosted, your COVID vaccine will reduce your chance of being hospitalized. Uh, but if you do get vaccinated, don't assume you can't catch or transmit COVID. Even if you get boosted, I wouldn't assume that just because we don't, we don't yet know how long it will last or what the uh, exact things are. Uh, wear masks when you're in public places indoors. Take special care with those who are immune compromised. Consider rapid tests before indoor gatherings. Um, and so uh, just in closing, I think ultimately living with COVID is going to end up being a bit about how we support our older adults um, as we learn to live with this virus, which is, uh, I think, going to end up still like being riskier than influenza ongoing, unless we develop a much better vaccine that works really well in older adults persistently, which maybe we will. Um, so as people get older, they are at higher risk from COVID, even if they're vaccinated. But, you know, the paradox or dilemma is that also as people get much older, they are among those who are at highest risk of harm from social restrictions and physical shutdowns. You know, really during the shutdown, it seemed to me that it was our oldest adults who lost their social contacts and activities who really suffered. And then also teenagers, of course, and young adults. So I feel it's important as a society that we find a way to live with COVID that doesn't put older adults at really high risk and that still makes it feel safe and possible for them to participate in society, in activities with each other and in activities with the, the rest of us. Uh, and I do feel like vaccinating as many people as possible helps. That's part of the reason why once it's available, I will vaccinate my younger child who is uh, 11. Um, you know, it is really more so that I feel that he can spend time more safely with his grandparents than for his own uh, particular health and uh, well-being. So thank you so much for watching this update. I hope it was helpful. Please stay safe. Enjoy your holidays. I am really hoping that we can all have more fun during the holidays this year than last year. Take care, and I will see you uh, next time I'm doing one of these. Thank you, everybody. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.